Well, before I get started, too, I, just, I need to say um, over the last couple of weeks, there's, uh, there's been a sharp disagreement between John and Fumi <laughs> that I haven't been able to be here to settle about the value of space travel. Now, apparently, uh, Pastor John is a true believer, and uh, Fumi is not. So I thought that uh, it was only appropriate for me to weigh in with my opinion. Uh, I'm agnostic. I couldn't care less. <laughs> so now we have the full range, OK? And with that, let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you that your word is the sword of the spirit um, by which you call us to do spiritual battle in the heavenly places. Would you equip us for that battle during this time and cause our hearts to worship you? Amen. Amen. Well, we've been going through uh, the, this series on the book of Nehemiah. And if you grab a Bible and turn to page 400, that's where we're at. Nehemiah is the story of a Jewish exile uh, living in Persia who took up the call to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to restore the national identity of the people of Israel. As cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, he had access to influence, and after a long period of prayer and fasting and planning, Nehemiah, if you remember, risked his own neck to secure permission and the necessary supplies for this massive project. Two weeks ago, Fumi showed us how, upon arrival in Jerusalem, 800 miles from Susa, Nehemiah galvanized the local Jewish community to join him in this vision. And last week, Pastor John led us through chapter 3, which was really a kind of victorious romp through the early building process, a who's who, right? A bird's eye retelling of all that was accomplished by the Jewish community as they worked together collaboratively. And here in chapter 4, what we get is sort of like a midterm progress report. Chapter 4, verse 6 summarizes it in this way. It says, so we rebuilt the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. And the people, for the people, had a mind to work. Now, as we consider the arc of the story of Nehemiah so far, it might be helpful to think of it uh, like a movie. In fact, I think it would make quite a good movie. And if the book of Nehemiah were a Hollywood movie, um, chapter three would have certainly been this sort of high-energy music montage, right? right? The part where Rocky is training to fight the Goliath-like Russian, right? And he's, he's moving boulders and whipping himself into shape and doing upside-down sit-ups and, and running up snowy mountains. And uh, we all know that the music montage is the part of the story where the hard work gets done in a sort of rapid-fire way, while there's this high-octane song going on, right? We built this city. <laughs> OK. Where the hero puts in the grueling hours. We built this city on rock and All right, I'm, I'm old. It's the part of the movie that makes you think that despite 
all the odds being stacked against them, the heroes might just be able to win. And if that's true, if chapter 3 is the music montage, then where we are today in chapter 4 is the part where the music slows down and it changes to a minor key and the problem is reinserted. Where we're reminded that there are still formidable bad guys and they will not suffer defeat easily. Look down with me, if you would, at Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and ask yourself whether these villains remind you of cartoon bad guys. After the music changes to a minor key, verse 1 begins. Now when Sanballat, all right, heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. Did you hear that, Sam Ballot? He's not even trying to be mature about it, guys. He's like a playground bully. He's just jeering at them. Verse 2, And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, in other words, in the presence of his evil henchmen, his army of orcs, his stormtroopers, his flying monkeys, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And the taunts continue in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, who we might call the worm tongue to his Saruman. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on that wall, he will break down their stone wall. Here, Sanballat and Tobiah unleash a barrage of poison-tipped arrows aimed at discouraging the builders into abandoning their work. They take aim at the Jewish people's own sense of inferiority as a humiliated people. What are these feeble Jews doing? They take aim at their faith. Will they sacrifice? Is that what they're up to? Pathetic. They even ridicule their building materials, suggesting they're not adequate for the job. And if, even if it's nothing more than a lie, my guess is that the stones that look so sturdy and adequate for the job just a few days ago, though perhaps maybe like a little charred, are now causing them to wonder, if we do all this work, is it going to be in vain? Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had someone take aim at your own insecurity? Perhaps your weight. Perhaps your hair, your intelligence, your ethnic identity. Have you ever had someone take aim at your faith? Maybe a family member who always has to subtly mock you every time you're together. You know, for all that time you spend worshiping that invisible God, that invisible man in the sky. Have you ever had something you were confident in and excited about? A new car, a scholarship, a new job or direction for your life. And then someone just throws passive-aggressive shade your way, spoils the whole thing. Well, the scriptures teach that this kind of opposition should not surprise us. Rather, it is to be expected in a fallen world. We're living, guys, in enemy-occupied territory. Jesus warned, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Likewise, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to put on the full armor of God because our battle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against spiritual forces of evil. In this sense, John White says that Satan is like a master puppeteer, playing one human being against another, often without us realizing who's really pulling the strings. So what do you do when your enemy is using methods that you believe are morally off-limits, using lies and gossip and slander, putting you at a strategic disadvantage? This kind of resistance is especially common when you're in the midst of kingdom work. White goes on to say, anytime we engage in the work of God, we're likely to encounter the poison-tipped arrows of ridicule. A barrage of truth mingled with lies, innuendo, malicious gossip, and implied threats is the normal experience of Christian leaders. And he continues with this exhortation. He says, when this happens, by all means, allow yourself to be cut down to size. But do not let yourself be dismayed or intimidated. Remember that the chorus of contempt has a diabolical conductor whose aim is to make your knees buckle. He likes tongue-tied, ineffective Christians and plays on your secret fears and inferiorities to make you one of them. Amen, amen. Take heed, brothers and sisters. We are called to be on guard, to be realistic about spiritual opposition to kingdom work and to be prepared to allow ridicule to humble us, but not to intimidate us. There's something like that going on here in Nehemiah 4. These exilic Jews are engaged in a mighty work of God. And they have these latent insecurities, as most of us certainly do. And it's likely that one of these taunts that's being tossed their way by Sanballat or Tobiah is just hitting them right where it hurts. You guys remember the phrase, sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt me. Yeah, according to the Bible, that phrase is rubbish. Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. James 3.8 warns that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Scripture says that words have the power to build up and to tear down, to heal and to destroy. So yes, words can really hurt us. But just in case mere words were not enough in this instance, as we read on, we find Sam Ballot and Tobiah are also willing to threaten with sticks and stones. In verses 7 and 8, the threats become physical. It says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now notice that this new threat is intended to cause confusion. It's not an invitation to meet in open combat or to step outside and settle this man to man. Rather, it's presented as a kind of terrorism, as a kind of psychological warfare. I still remember 20 years ago, after 9-11, after the two towers had fallen, this indiscriminate sense of fear and confusion that it called, that it caused, excuse me. And people weren't so much afraid that our country was about to go to war. 
they were afraid to go to the mall. They were afraid to send their children to school. And I remember some of the level-headed among us had to say, hey, look, I don't think the terrorists are trying to, like, target Deltona, Florida. Calm down, guys. But we were afraid. We were confused. Likewise, here in Nehemiah 4, these threats are not without psychological effect. Verse 10 says, In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Do you see how these words of despair are tied to their sense of fear? Jerusalem is quaking. Verse 11 continues, And our enemies said, They will not see, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At this point, the threats of their enemies become the stuff of nightmares for the sons and daughters of God. Mists of horror to confuse the minds of those who work for the kingdom, as one commentator put it. Because it's one thing to threaten with war and quite another thing to threaten with murder. The sword of open combat carries with it a certain kind of fear, but it's one that you can brace yourself for. How do you brace yourself against the hidden dagger, against the cowardice of terrorism? Again, what do you do when you find your enemy is using methods that you believe are morally off limits, using hidden daggers and human shields, putting you at a strategic disadvantage? Up to this point, we have not discussed Nehemiah's response. How does this Old Testament leader par excellence respond to these venomous foes of Israel? But we would do well to read closely and to take notes. Because Nehemiah knows that the true battle is not against flesh and blood. So he employs three spiritual weapons, faith, prayer, and prudence. And these three responses build off one another. Faith leads him to pray, and prayer leads him to prudent action. So let's start with Nehemiah's faith. While the people of Jerusalem are tempted to feel abandoned and alone in verse 11, asking themselves, how will we rebuild this wall by ourselves? We find Nehemiah exhorting them to a higher perspective. Verse 14 says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He's fanning into flames their faith. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In verse 20, Nehemiah goes even further, proclaiming to his brethren, Our God will fight for us. Evoking the words of Moses to the terrified Israelites when their backs were to the Red Sea, Our God will fight for us. In fact, even that word, even though this word faith is never used of Nehemiah here in chapter 4, I would venture to say that it is the definitive mark of his leadership. And how about us? When trouble comes, are we the first to complain? 
Are we the first to despair? The first to drown our sorrows in alcohol? The first to abandon the things that God has given us to do? Guys, what if COVID lasts another year? Are we going to just stay away from church and Bible study? What if we find that the nine to five job is more tiring than we thought it would be? Are we going to stop spending time alone with the Lord each day? What if it becomes increasingly more embarrassing and risky to publicly align ourselves with the Christian faith? Are we going to stop sharing Jesus? Nehemiah was living in a time after the exile where the state of Jerusalem was depressing, guys. The future was shaky and where it was probably a bit embarrassing to publicly identify himself as a Jew. But Nehemiah was first and foremost a man of faith. He didn't care. And it's Nehemiah's faith that leads him to pray, which is his second spiritual weapon. Did you notice that prayer in verses 4 and 5 was his immediate response to the opposition? In a prayer that's likely to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? He cries out, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered on a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from before your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now this kind of vindictive sounding prayer, uh, sometimes referred to as imprecatory prayer, is actually fairly common in the Old Testament. We see it all over the place in the Psalms. So what are we to make of it, especially those of us who follow the one who told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? I'll come back to that issue in a few minutes, but I don't first, I, I don't want us to miss what's good about this prayer, what's positive about this prayer, what are the merits? Because, guys, this is a prayer that's rooted in a deep cry for justice, is it not? Turn back their taunts on their own head and an abiding passion for God's honor, for they've provoked you to anger. You're the one who aligned yourself with us. They've provoked you to anger. And like the psalmists, guys, it's an honest prayer. He doesn't wait until all his emotions and words have a pious ring to him before he comes to God. He comes to God with his heart still raw. Brothers and sisters, God can handle it. In fact, in the Psalms, God is oftentimes the object of the frustration. There's a story of a lady who's been at a Catholic hospital for many, many months. Her husband was dying, and after much anguish and watching him suffer day after day, she went outside to one of the religious statues, and in her tears and frustration, started picking up clumps of mud and hurling it at the statue. And uh, the hospital called security to go out there and stop her. And this wise old nun that was working at the hospital said, no, 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 don't stop her. She's praying. I think there's something true about that. Here's a woman who has real faith. She wouldn't be flinging mud at something she didn't believe in. She wouldn't be so disappointed unless she truly believed. But in that moment, her faith was being expressed in a raw way. Her frustration with God was being expressed raw, but she was coming to God. Now, to be clear, we don't want to excuse blasphemy. 
And it's certainly true that God is never really the one in, in the blame, right? Even if sometimes we feel that way. But it's also true that God would rather us come to him with our honest emotions rather than being dishonest or avoiding coming to him at all. It's in prayer, it's, it's in the kiln of his presence that our emotions are transformed, that our hearts are aligned with the kingdom of God, that our minds begin to take, that we're conformed no longer to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. And in this instance, the cool thing is, is that Nehemiah's prayer is contagious. Because by the time we get to verse 9, others have begun to pray as well. It says, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Notice that they prayed and they set a guard as protection. And this brings us to Nehemiah's third weapon against opposition, prudence or prudent action. Once again, we see that Nehemiah doesn't dichotomize between prayer and action. On the contrary, his faith inspires his action, and his prayer informs his plans. Remember, we saw in chapters 1 and 2, if you remember, we saw Nehemiah's plan of action with King Artaxerxes came out of the kiln of prayer, and that's why God granted him success. And he knew at that time, well, there's a million things that I could try to do in my own strength, but only God knows the right lever to pull. Only God knows the right button to push so that this can actually be effective. And here in chapter 4, we see Nehemiah, this part of his character, he's up to more of the same, right? Because it's one thing to pray for God's protection, verse 9, but another to exercise prudence and strategically station people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows by the lowest parts of the unfinished and open spaces in the wall. Verses 13 and 14. And since Nehemiah sees the connection between prayer and prudence, he can still give glory to God in verse 15, right? He says, when our enemies heard, it, uh, heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And I love the idea of Sanballat and Tobiah realizing that it was God who had frustrated their plans. Amen? In the words of C.S. Lewis, the evil are always surprised to discover that the good can be clever too. And their prudence went even further. Under the godly leadership of Nehemiah, the people of Jerusalem became 100% committed to finishing the wall. But they also had the sobriety to understand that the threat was real. Verse 16 says, From that day on, half of my servants worked on constructions, and the other half held the spears, shields, bows, and coat of mail. I mean, how cool is that? They were engaging in a major construction project in the midst of a war zone. Verse 17 goes on to say, Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored with the work with one hand, and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Must have been cumbersome, guys. Must have been in the way. But nothing was going to stop them from doing the work of God. And this double-edged picture of faith and prudence in Nehemiah 4, I think should challenge all of us. Because on the one hand, there's those of us who allow fear fear of danger, of disease, of legal liability 
to keep us from doing the things that God has called us to do. And on the other hand, there are those of us who just take foolish risks and excuse it as an act of faith. It's like the man who was stuck in a rising flood and the Coast Guard sent a boat to the man and the man said, that's okay, my God will save me. And the waters began to rise and he moved up to the roof and they sent a helicopter and he said, that's okay, my God will save me. And then in heaven, he said, God, I thought you told me that you were going to save me. And God said, didn't you get the boat and the helicopter? So in a God-centered view of the world, faith and prudence are not in competition with one another, even though our ultimate trust is in God. In his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster writes, God is able to protect what we possess. We can trust him. Does that mean that we should never take the keys out of our car or lock the door? Of course not. But we know that the lock on the door is not what protects the house. It's only common sense to take normal precautions. But if we believe that precaution itself protects us and our goods, we will be riddled with anxiety. Does anybody feel riddled with anxiety? Foster concludes, there is simply no such thing as a burglar-proof precaution. Obviously, these matters are not restricted to possessions, but include such things as our reputation and our employment. Simplicity means the freedom to trust God for these and all things. Now, let me summarize as we begin to draw to a close. This morning, we've seen that opposition can be expected whenever we're engaged in God's work. That the music montage of progress is often followed by a reassertion of evil enemies. We've talked about the power of words, ridicule, lies, and gossip, and how they can be used as poison darts to throw us off and to make us tongue-tied, ineffective Christians. We've talked about the spiritual weapons of faith, prayer, and prudence, how the Israelites worked with their sword at their hip, and how faith and prudence are not in competition with each other. And even though spiritual opposition continues in the new covenant, one thing we haven't discussed is how Christ transforms our inner attitudes toward our human enemies in the new covenant, right? Because with the, with the new covenant comes a more clearly demarcated set of values where we learn that in the, worms, in the words of James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Another way to put it is that on this side of the cross, we learn that God's passion for love is even greater than his passion for justice. That there's an asymmetrical bent toward mercy in the kingdom of God. At the cross, God's love and God's justice meet, but in such a way that God's love is what's held out to the world. And since we remember that we were once enemies of God, in our own injustice, in our own sin, our posture towards our enemies is not to pray for fire to rain down from them on heaven, from heaven, but for their hearts to be converted and for them to know Christ. In this way, you, we unite our hearts to the heart of God who says in Ezekiel 33, 11, that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. Now, does this nullify God's justice? By no means. Instead, Jesus teaches us to show mercy, to love our enemies, 
and to leave ultimate judgment and ultimate justice in the hands of God. Even a righteous man like Nehemiah is not the final judge. Now, does that strike you as somewhat unsatisfying? If so, you're not alone. I mean, especially if you have a passion for justice. Tim Keller points out that there's always an aspect of the gospel that's prone to offend our own cultural sensibilities. So for many in the West, it's God's judgment that actually offends us the most. But in many other parts of the world, like the Middle East where Nehemiah is from, it's actually his call to love our enemies that actually most offends. But in the purpose of God, guys, there's a proper season for everything, for love and for justice. Jesus, at his first coming, came on a mission of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But at his second coming, he will be on a mission of justice. As the creed affirms, he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. And this time, according to Jesus, it will be the wicked who will be surprised in the night. In Matthew 24, 43 through 44, Jesus warns, Know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, those of us who have trusted in Jesus don't have to be afraid of Jesus' second coming as a thief in the night because as the catechism puts it, our judge is also our savior. But those who have not trusted in them, who, has, who have spurned his offer of mercy and repentance, who have lied and cheated and raped their fellow man, for those like Sam Ballot and Tobiah, who have been treacherous toward God and towards his people, to them Jesus will come as an avenger as a thief in the night. What do you do when your enemies use methods that are morally off limits, giving them a strategic advantage? Saints, rather than taking matters into our own hands, we pray for them. We don't stoop to their level. We pray for their conversion, and we remember that it's not our own prudence that we put our trust in, but that God will have the last word one way or another. Those who thought they would catch God off guard will find themselves caught off guard. Those who spread terror and injustice will find the day of judgment to be terrible indeed. So the lamb is also a lion. And the lion is also a lamb. The Bible's ultimate response to the problem of ongoing human oppression is that either God cures us from the inside or he visits us from the outside. And which will it be for you? Perhaps those of us who have especially suffered much unjust opposition, whether the exilic Jews like Nehemiah, Haitian immigrants, for Christians living in Afghanistan, for the millions of innocent unborn babies, for those who have faced injustices that few of us in our comparative places of privilege can even fathom, at the time of the second coming of Christ, it will be truly said in the words of Nehemiah 4.20, do not be afraid. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Amen.